What a great illustration of the flesh being weak and the, um, the spirit being willing this morning, me trying to sing. Um, yeah, I, I was, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of, I'm a sports fan, kind of, not as much as I used to be, but I was reminded of Michael Jordan in the 1998 um, NBA championship when he had like a 103 degree fever and he goes out and plays against the Utah Jazz and, you know, had a great game and, uh, you know, I, I'm not feeling as bad as he is, or he was, so uh, I'm sure that I can make it through this. Um, I just might have to stop and take a drink every now and then. Uh, we've got about two or three lessons left in the book of Mark. Um, should get us right through the, the end of the year. Uh, after that, we're going to have um, a mini-series on the wisdom of Solomon, and after that, we'll be uh, starting up um, a study on the book of Nehemiah. So, uh, today we're going to be covering... Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, for those of you who are listening online. Um, Every person is worth more than their worst act. Every person is worth more than their worst act. That's a line from the movie Dead Man Walking. There's this scene in which the main character, who's being played by Sarah Sarandon, Sarah Susan Sarandon, thank you, um, Is, uh, she's seated with the parents of a child who was, uh, who was brutally murdered, and she's explaining to the parents um, that she has been asked by the murderer to be with him up until the point where uh, he's executed. And uh, when the parents realize that she's going to stand by this guy's side, man, they are, they're furious with her. They can't believe that she's going to stand by this guy's side. And so they want to know, how could you possibly even stand in the same room as this monster who murdered our daughter? And her response is simple. She says, every person is worth more than their worst act. And I got to thinking, man, that's a really hard thing for us to wrap our minds around from a human perspective uh, because it's, it's natural for us to think that a person's value almost decreases in a way uh, in accordance with the severity of their crime. Um, you know, at least it, you know, it decreases in, in our eyes. What a great thing to know that it doesn't decrease in God's eyes. You know, that's why it's easy for us to support punishing somebody like Osama bin Laden or somebody like Hitler or, or Elmo, you know, who knows. Um, you know, when somebody's guilty of, of something as heinous as murder, our reaction is to say, you know, eye for an eye. You know, that, that's, our, that's our knee-jerk reaction is to say eye for an eye. Well, today we're going to move one step closer to the crucifixion, to Jesus' death, and we're going to see him stand before someone who is supposed to represent justice, somebody who's supposed to enforce justice in first century Jerusalem. Uh, but we'll see that this man, known as Pontius Pilate, uh, falls, fall, falls far short of this expectation. So this is a story that every single one of us has probably heard a million times. Has anybody not heard this story? I mean, come on. I mean, even people who don't go to church have heard this story. <clears throat> but it's one of those stories that just uh, never grows old because it's in the midst of this, this travesty, this uh, incredible injustice, the greatest injustice in the history of the entire universe, that we find the greatest demonstration of love in the universe's history ever to be found. So it was the tradition of the time for the Roman government to show mercy to one person once a year. <clears throat> and the day that we find Mark telling us about here in our text is the same day that a prisoner named Barabbas is apparently set to be crucified. Barabbas was a murderer. 
he, uh, he had killed somebody. In fact, it seems likely that he had led some sort of uprising against the Roman authorities, during which he caused the death of at least one uh, Roman soldier. Now, this is part conjecture, but Luke tells us that he was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. That's from Luke chapter 23, verse 19. <clears throat> but at some point, probably during uh, this uprising, Barabbas also stole. Uh, John tells us that he was a thief. Matthew tells us that he was notorious as a rebel, which basically means that he was well-known, but for evil reasons, not for good reasons. Thank you. Sore throat does uh, make it difficult to preach. That's okay. So as Barabbas is waiting for his final sentencing, Jesus is being brought before Pilate uh, by the members of the Sanhedrin. He had been deemed worthy of death by the Sanhedrin after going through this fraudulent and illegal trial in which Jesus explicitly identified himself as the incarnate God. Now, there are several issues that are going on in this passage that we're looking at today, but I want us to take special note of the hatred that the unrighteous have for the righteous. That's one thing. That's a prevalent theme in this part of Mark's story. But I also want to help us go behind the scenes to see the powers that are at work, and I want to address the issue of why this story ends with Jesus being crucified and Barabbas going free. So Mark's testimony resumes with Jesus being brought before Pilate. We pick it up in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, where we read, Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. If you've ever heard of the term groupthink, it was a term that was uh, coined by William H. White Jr. in 1952. He wrote that, quote, <clears throat> what we are talking about is a rationalized conformity, an open, articulate philosophy which holds that group values are not only expedient, but right and good as well. Now, the Sanhedrin weren't a bunch of dummies. Uh, they were a bunch of big meanies, but they weren't a bunch of, they weren't a bunch of dummies. Um, yeah, maybe Victor and I should have traded places. For, no, I'm just kidding, teaching the kids. Um, but this is, a, this is a great example of groupthink and the, the dangers of, uh, of groupthink. Sociologists discovered many years ago that in a groupthink, intelligent and rational people will fail to see any fault whatsoever with the group's consensus. And any evidence to the contrary, they're just willing to completely dismiss it, completely overlook it, so that they don't contradict the group's consensus. Uh, This is a phenomenon, actually, that shows us how important it is to really surround ourselves with godly and wise people, uh, humble people. Now, we saw Jesus stand before the Sanhedrin in our previous lesson at um, at the chief priest's residence late at night, But Mark uh, tells us that it's now morning. He starts out by telling us that it's now morning. Now, we can't exactly be sure what's been going on for the past several hours, um, but the last thing we were told is that Jesus was being blindfolded and beaten by these religious leaders. So the trial that happened um, at night was illegal, so they had had to uh, gather together as soon as morning came in order to make it look like 
They were uh, doing the, the normal thing. That They were on the up and up. There was nothing suspicious here, so they had to wait until morning because if Pilate would have known that Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin took place in, so secretively at night, um, charges would have been immediately dropped. So what's happened while the, you know, between Jesus being beaten by the Sanhedrin and morning? You know, we can really only guess. Uh, maybe Jesus got a little bit of sleep, but I, I think it's probably uh, more likely that he was beaten through the night by the members of the Sanhedrin. But we really don't know. We can only guess. But it's, this is several hours later. And the charge that they convicted him of the night before was blasphemy, claiming, explicitly claiming, to be God incarnate. But these guys are smart enough to know that Pilate isn't going to care one iota. He, he, he couldn't care less if Jesus is claiming to be God. And so the, the members of the Sanhedrin have to come up with something quick that they can charge Jesus with that Pilate will care about. So the first thing that they tried to uh, accuse Jesus of was encouraging people not to pay their taxes. That's what we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. And Pilate actually, you know, he hears this charge, but he doesn't seem all that interested in it. But he finds out that Jesus is a Judean, uh, which means that he's from Herod's territory. And so he immediately sends Jesus off to stand before Herod. Now, Herod was a total hedonist. He, he lived almost exclusively for the pleasures of the flesh. He wanted to be entertained. He wanted to get drunk. He wanted to you know, he just please the flesh. That was, that was who Herod was. But at the moment, the only thing that pleased uh, Herod was to mock Jesus in front of his friends. And so, uh, in front of Herod's friends. And so, um, after that, he sends Jesus back to Pilate. He doesn't find Jesus guilty of anything. He sends him back to Pilate. And so, the second thing that the Sanhedrin accuses Jesus of, once he comes back, it's a little bit more severe, a little bit more serious. They accuse Jesus of leading an uprising against the Roman Empire. Um, Luke tells us that when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate remarked, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor, for, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. That's what we read in Luke chapter 23, verses 14 and 15. Now, it's interesting to, to see that they would charge Jesus with not only something that Jesus has not done in any way, but which this prisoner named Barabbas has been known and already convicted of, known for and already convicted of. So Jesus is immediately acquitted of this charge as well. Pilate looks at him and says, eh, he hasn't done this, what are you talking about? He's not guilty. And so the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes have to come up with something else. And so the third thing that they charge Jesus with is claiming to rival Caesar as the king of the Jews. And if there was one thing that the Romans didn't take lightly, it was uh, opposition to their authority. And so Pilate asks Jesus, are you, are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Is that who you are? It's an interesting question that Pilate would ask him. I mean, what, what's he going to do if he is the king of the Jews? But when Jesus answers by saying, it is as you say, um, first of all, I want you to notice that in your Bible, and I, I think I did it up here too. Yeah, I, did, I did do it up here. The words, it is as, are in italics. And whenever you see something that's in italics, it means it's not in the original text. 
translators have put it in there maybe for clarification, maybe to make it easier for us to translate into English since it's really hard to uh, you know, translate word for word from what, any language into another language. And so the words it is as are not in the original text. Um, a more literal translation would simply be you say it or um, this you say. And it's an interesting response because when Jesus has been asked things like this before, he's responded with this resounding and, and confident, I am. But it's not what he says to Pilate. He just says, you said it. You say it. So um, his answer is basically the same thing as saying, um, am I the king of the Jews? Well, by your worldview, I guess that's what you would call me. Um, but he, it's really kind of a, just a half-hearted answer. It's a very ambiguous answer. <laughs> you said it. I, di- I didn't say it. You said it, is basically what he's saying. So why does he not answer more boldly here? And I think the answer is found in what John tells us when, uh, you know, that Jesus goes on to tell Pilate, At this point, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That's from John chapter 18, verse 36. And so with these words, Jesus has effectively diffused any concerns that Pilate might have had about Jesus leading some type of rebellion of the Jews against against the, the Roman Empire. And Pilate realizes that Jesus does not pose any type of threat whatsoever, nor does he even desire to pose a threat. So apparently the the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes didn't live by a three strikes and you're out because they they keep at it. They keep at it, and Pilate uh, hasn't hasn't thrown them out, even though their, their plot is really falling apart at the seams. Instead, panic sets in with these religious leaders, and they turn up their level of aggression. They become more and more hostile uh, toward Jesus. Now, experience has taught me that this is what people do when they don't get exactly what they want, when, when stubborn people don't get exactly what they want. They, to- they toss rational thinking you know, and, and uh, you know, intelligence out the window, and they turn up the emotions. And we've all seen it happen. I mean, especially in, uh, you know, in election season. We just you know, finished an election season. This is what you see. You know, the, 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 candidate, you know, the candidates will start out playing pretty clean, but somebody will start losing some ground in the polls. And so somebody will decide, you know, the guy who's losing ground will say, okay, I guess I better resort to mudslinging. And the mudslinging war is on. Rational thinking is out the window. Emotional arguments uh, are, are what, they, what they resort to. And so that's what it looks like on a larger scale, but the same phenomenon can be found on a smaller scale, on an interpersonal level as well. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. Wrath is fierce, and anger is a flood, but who can stand before envy? In other words, we might think that wrath is some pretty serious stuff, and we might even you know, get swept away by somebody who is angry, but we haven't seen anything until we've seen the evil tendencies that can be fueled by envy. Now, if we take a preview of what's to come real quick, if we look uh, forward to verse 10, we'll see that Pilate has started to realize that it's out of envy that these guys have levied these charges against Jesus because they had envied 
Jesus. They had coveted what Jesus had. He had authority, which people rightfully recognized uh, when he taught. He had respect. He had righteousness. He had influence. He had wisdom that they could not even come close to touching. And, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And that's what has provoked this hearing before Pilate. And Pilate realizes it. He's caught on to what's going on in their hearts. Um, he sees right through this emotional outburst and the aggression. And he's able to correctly discern what's really going on here. And so thus, Pilate proceeds to encourage Jesus to defend himself. We pick it up in verses 4 and 5. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. That's almost astonishing that Jesus would remain silent in face of such bogus charges. Uh, Pilate was not a nice guy. You know, you, you couldn't be a governor or, you know, some, some uh, leader in the Roman government if you were a nice person. Uh, so he's not a nice guy. But he's amazed that Jesus is remaining silent. And he, he's encouraging Jesus, which is what you would expect a nice person to do, not a, not a cruel uh, dictator type of person. Why doesn't Jesus do something? Why doesn't Jesus say something in his defense? And I think that the answer to that is found when we remember that Jesus had completely surrendered himself to the will of the Father. And later on in a lesson, um, either next, yeah, probably next week, uh, we'll see Jesus being mocked by the scribes and elders as he hung on the cross, taunting him with things like, he saved others, he cannot save himself. It's from chapter 15, verse 31. And the reality is that, yeah, Jesus could have very easily saved himself. He could have avoided this whole mess altogether because he's known since the beginning of his ministry that this is where it was all leading up to. So yes, he could have saved himself. He could have avoided this mess, but that is not what the Father's will was. And so as he stands in silence before Pilate, yeah, he could have defended himself. He could have walked free. No doubt about it. He could have defended himself and avoided the cross altogether, but his desire is to do the Father's will. And so he remains silent. Even though Pilate is pretty much taking his side at this point. If Jesus had spoken, this is a possibility, maybe if Jesus had spoken, maybe the envy of the religious leaders would not have been so incredibly obvious to absolutely everyone, including Pilate. See, silence has a way of revealing impure motives. And that's exactly what happens here. And so it's at this point that we're introduced to a man named Barabbas. We pick it up in verses 6 to 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted back all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, 
Pilate released Barabbas for them. And having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Let's take a look at Barabbas. He's, he's actually one of the most fascinating characters, in, in my opinion, in the entire New Testament because uh, he's actually got a, a very interesting story. Um, as we've already seen, he was this notorious rebel. He was a murderer. He was a thief. He, was, uh, he, he had helped to lead an insurrection. But those aren't the interesting things that I'm talking about. Um, for starters, the name Barabbas literally means the father's son. And so the choice that Pilate gives to the people is between the father's son, little f, little s, and the father's son, big F, big S. Uh, even more interesting is the fact, this, this is uh, kind of fascinating, um, Ancient historians uh, that are outside of the Bible have suggested that this man's name, Barabbas' first name, is Yeshua, Jesus. So this is a yearly tradition. Uh, The people will be given the option to set a prisoner to the Roman government free, kind of as, um, as a way of having mercy and favor with the Roman government. And the Roman government would do it to help manipulate the people because they were a very unjust uh, government. And so to avoid insurrections and uprisings, they would release one person a year, ideally, who the people thought was worthy of being um, set free. And so when the people came to Pilate and requested that he do what he always does, what he customarily does once a year, Pilate sees it as a way to set Jesus free. That's really what's going on in Pilate's mind here. He sees it as a way to set Jesus free. He's thinking, surely the people will see exactly how obvious it is that Jesus is innocent and they will set him free. So his first thing is, oh, you want me to set the the king of the Jews free? You want me to set Jesus free? Because he's thinking, yeah, of course they will. Maybe he realized, maybe he realized um, that many of these people were celebrating Jesus when he came into Jerusalem earlier in the week. Maybe he knew that they had sat captivated, listening to Jesus as he sat and taught in the temple. Maybe Pilate even knew that Jesus had healed some people, including one of his own soldiers, the night before. And so Pilate gives the the crowd a choice between Jesus, the rebel, or Jesus, the righteous redeemer, thinking that this would be a no-brainer, that this this would just be automatic for the crowd. Now, why do you think Pilate chose um, Barabbas? Why, why do you think they wanted Barabbas free? I mean, the, the Roman government surely had scores of prisoners, scores of people uh, in prison for, for uh, good reasons and some probably for bad reasons. And we know that there are at least two other thieves who are going to go and die on, the, on a cross later that day. So why Barabbas? Why would Pilate pick Barabbas to be the other option? Why would he risk setting a notorious rebel free? The answer, I think, is found in realizing that Pilate knew that he had to keep the people happy. Um, There had already been this uprising of the people, which Barabbas had taken part in. Uh, Maybe he even helped to lead it. And so Pilate was actually on thin ice because if there was another uprising, not only was Pilate going to lose his job, but he would probably lose his life as well because that's just how the Roman Empire worked. That's just how it was. And so I would propose that Pilate wanted nothing more than to see Barabbas executed because Barabbas was part of the reason that Pilate was on thin ice. Eye for an eye, right? And I think he, he chooses Barabbas um, 
because Barabbas is uh, an enemy of Pilate. Pilate hates Barabbas because he's put Pilate on thin ice. But instead, Pilate's apparent wisdom turns out to be foolishness as the people choose Jesus the rebel over Jesus the righteous redeemer. And the next question I want us to simply ask is, why? Why would they pick Jesus the rebel over Jesus the redeemer? Especially given how many lives Jesus the righteous redeemer had touched that week. People he'd healed, people he'd ministered to. I'd say that it's probably because they were disappointed in Jesus. They had a set of expectations that Jesus didn't meet. They thought that he was going to lead them to freedom through an uprising. That's what they were expecting. They were expecting an uprising to be led by the Messiah. And so when it became apparent that Jesus had no intention or ability, at least from from their perspective, um, to set them free, they were disappointed. Have you ever been there? You ever been disappointed in Jesus? I mean, I, I know I have been. You know, I, I thought things should go left, and he brought things right. I thought things should go right, he brought things left. I thought up, he went down. I mean, I, I've, I've been there. I've been disappointed. Or, or maybe you just, you don't, you don't know which way to expect, or you're, you're hoping one way or the other, and he does nothing. You don't see anything happening. And so you start to feel a little bit of disappointment in Jesus. And this is something that I think we all feel to some degree, at one point or another. But at some point or another, we all stand with the crowd here, choosing rebellion over righteousness, often because we feel disappointed for some, some reason in God. You see, Barabbas actually represents all of humanity in this passage. He's a rebel, he's a thief, he's a murderer, and that's undoubtedly just the tip of the iceberg. And you know what? Every single one of us is guilty of these things as well. Every single one of us is a rebel at heart. Every single one of us is a murderer at heart. We've all been angry at one point or another, which Jesus said, hey, it's the same thing. If there's murder going on in your heart, it's just the same as physical murder from God's perspective. And so Jesus is going to die in the place of this heinous murderer and thief. And we might think, oh, you know, what a, what a horrible injustice. And it is, it is a horrible injustice that Jesus, the righteous redeemer, would take the place of Jesus, the rebel. But what we need to understand is that we are all just as rebellious as Barabbas. Every single one of us, we've all taken part in our own uprising, our own insurrection against God. And it's just as much an injustice that Jesus would die in Barabbas's place as it is that he would die in my place, or your place. Every single one of us is a rebel at heart. Every single one of us acts out against God, defying not only what he clearly reveals in his word, but also defying our own conscience, doing what we know is wrong, and resisting what we know to be right. We all know that the wage of sin is death, and so death is what every single one of us deserves, but Jesus stood in our place. He stood in our place. And it's just as much an injustice that he stood in Barabbas' place as it is that he stood in our place. Now what's odd is that Barabbas, this Barabbas guy, disappears into history after being set free. He, he gets set free and we never hear another word about him. 
Historians don't say much about him, uh, you know, other than what happened here. The Bible doesn't say anything about him. Apparently, he just disappears into history. There's no indication that after Jesus the Redeemer took his place, uh, that he had a new outlook on life. There's no indication that he had a, a changed perspective on life. And when we read through this story, and when we really understand what's going on, and when we see ourselves represented by Barabbas and by the crowd, by the way, and that doesn't change our outlook on life, man, we are no better than Barabbas. We, we are no better than he is. We're no different. The substitutionary atonement is something that should change our lives around, turn our lives around 180 degrees. You know, I once had a, a, a conversation with a very wise pastor who warned me about people who, uh, who attend church services simply for the sake of absolving a sense of deep, unresolved guilt in their lives. Uh, you know, he, he told me that these people come to church hoping that the sermon will really dig into them, really pile on the guilt um, because it almost becomes a form of punishment to them so that they can feel um, better about themselves because they've been through this, this uh, moment of punishment. Um, and so as they leave, uh, they feel better, but, uh, you know, until next week. Uh, but this is actually a very strange psychological phenomenon. Uh, researchers once conducted an experiment in which um, half of the subjects were asked to write about something that they felt guilty about, and the other half were asked to write about something that was morally neutral, you know, walking to the bus stop or uh, putting a piece of toast in the toaster, you know, something like that. And while they wrote this, they were asked to keep their hand submerged in painfully cold ice water. And what they found is, uh, is that the subjects who had been instructed to write about something they felt guilty about actually forced themselves to endure the pain of the cold ice significantly longer than the people who were writing about something uh, with no feelings of guilt tied to it. And the conclusion of the study was this, quote, researchers explain that we tend to associate pain with justice as a form of punishment. So when we're feeling bad about an immoral act we committed, experiencing pain makes us feel like we have rebalanced the scales of justice and therefore it resolves our guilt. And the point of all this is just... Um, that, yeah, we, we should feel a sense of guilt when we sin, but people who come to church for the sake of uh, experiencing punishment, <laughs> and I'm not saying that's anybody here. This is just a phenomenon that's, that's uh, universal. It's part of the, the human psyche, um, that if people are coming to church to, uh, to try and rebalance the scales of justice, even subconsciously, man, for, forget about it, because there's nothing that we can do to rebalance the scales of justice in God's eyes. Jesus stood in our place, the righteous for the rebellious, not to put us into this cycle of feeling guilt and going through self-punishment, but in order that we would experience serious, deep transformation in our lives. Now, there's no evidence that Barabbas was changed at all by the fact that Jesus died in his place while he, Barabbas, was set free. And as we look at our lives, the question is, is there mounting, increasing evidence that our lives have been transformed? And so the crowd demands that Pilate crucify Jesus. But Pilate's actually going to try to work out a compromise, which is uh, not always the wisest thing to do. Rather than sending Jesus off to simply die on a cross, he'll order that Jesus be scourged. 
Now, being scourged was not a normal practice for somebody who was about to be crucified. That wasn't normative at all. There's no evidence to support the idea that the two thieves who hung alongside Jesus were scourged. There's no evidence to suggest that, uh, that people who were crucified were normally scourged, that anybody um, else was scourged. Scourging was a form of punishment in and of itself. It was supposed to be a means to an end in and of itself. It wasn't supposed to be followed by anything else. It was the punishment. It was a gruesome practice in which, you know, it, it would leave a person's back and sides looking like, uh, you know, somebody had, had uh, tied a person to the back of a truck, you know, on a rope behind a truck, and just dragged them, you know, going off-roading for a few miles. I mean, it was, it was really, really gruesome. And so Pilate is trying to satisfy the crowd by ordering that Jesus be scourged rather than immediately sending Jesus off to be crucified. And John tells us that after the scourging, Jesus comes back to Pilate once more. And Pilate says, behold the man. Look, here he is. Are you guys happy? You know, that's basically what he's saying. Are you you guys happy? You know, Jesus is undoubtedly covered, you know, head to toe with his own blood. And uh, and Pilate's thinking, these guys have got to be appeased by this. But Pilate's last attempt at saving Jesus failed. And the crowd continued to demand Jesus' death. Now, Pilate still could have let Jesus go free, by the way. He still could have. But he's got a major dilemma. He's trying to please opposing forces, the forces of righteousness and the forces of rebellion. And so thus, Pilate had a choice to make, and what he chose was basically to ignore his own conscience. And every time you or I uh, make a choice or a decision based on a desire to appease the forces of rebellion, whether it's in us or in people around us, it requires that we ignore our consciences as well. And what we see here is just how dangerous it is when we do that. There is no happy medium. You cannot find a happy medium between righteousness and unrighteousness. You cannot please God and people. Paul said this, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? It's one or the other. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, that's not saying that you can't please people, but when it contradicts pleasing God, when it goes against pleasing God, it is wrong. The, 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 the gist here is that you please God by working with people. But if pleasing people means violating something that God has either explicitly forbidden or just something that violates your own conscience, you don't do it. And so every day we're we're confronted with choices that we have to make. And we're socially trained to please people, even when that means forsaking our consciences. But wisdom would have us abandon the desire to please people, first and foremost, which was Pilate's sin, and embrace the desire to please God, first and foremost. So finally, we see the way that the soldiers uh, treat Jesus as they prepare him for crucifixion. We'll wrap it up with 16 to 20, verses 16 to 20. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him, and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, 
They took a purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Man, it, it's, it's difficult to read through our passage today and miss the fact that the unrighteous have a definite, deep-seated hatred of the righteous. Now look at what Mark tells us. They called together the whole Roman cohort. In other words, soldiers who were off-duty got called to the scene. Soldiers who were just standing around as a presence to keep the people you know, uh, under control a little bit you know, just by their presence, they were called to the scene. Everybody, all the Roman guards and soldiers were called to the scene. And, man, and they, they were summoned to join in as Jesus was beat. He was spit on. He was mocked. Um, man, this was anything but the norm. This is not how normal uh, procedures went. People did not uh, have the whole Roman cohort called to beat them and mock them before they got crucified. If this was a normal practice, there'd be no need for Mark to tell us about this because his audience would have already known that it happened. So what we see here is a very unusual and unique outpouring of hatred. Again, it's like like we saw last week. It's like the the, the spirit of you know um, safety, reserve, was moved out of the way. And all of a sudden, this outpouring of hatred was being worked through these people. The lesson here is that the Father's will often requires walking a difficult road. He never, ever said it would be easy. And we too will sometimes be mocked when we're true to our calling, but that's where we learn the true joy of following Jesus. That's where we learn what true joy is all about. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So that's from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Man, it's hard to imagine that Jesus approached this situation with joy, isn't it? That's, that's totally contrary to our thinking. How could, he, how could there be any sense of joy? But pay attention to the verse that follows. For consider him, this is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We choose the righteous or the rebellious. Which are you going to please? That's really what it all comes down to. And it's really easy for us to grow weary and lose heart, but consider what Jesus went through. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It was his joy to do the will of the Father, even though it wasn't easy. And it was his joy to stand in our place. It was his joy to stand in our place because every person is valued more by God than the worst act they've ever committed. That truth should transform our lives from the inside out. We can't change our hearts, but Jesus can, if we're simply willing to surrender our will to him. And that's why he willfully chose to stand in Barabbas' place, and that's why he willfully stood in our place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's something that we've read a million times. Reading this story and seeing all these things, Lord, I just pray that you will open our eyes to see this with fresh eyes, to see it from your perspective. Lord, it's so easy for us to identify with the crowd. It's so easy for us to identify with Barabbas, maybe even Pilate. 
But Lord, it's because of Your great mercy that when You look at us, You identify us with Your Son. Thank You so much for Your love. I pray that we would live lives that demonstrate our love in return for You. That we would be transformed by the cross. That we would be transformed by the substitutionary atonement. Thank You for sending Your Son to die in our place. We know that we were the ones who deserved your wrath. But you put it on your son because you loved us so much. We thank you for that and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.